0: You're listening to the Slice of MIT podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association. Joe McGonigal here, Director of Alumni Education at MIT. It's the MIT Alumni Book Club, Fall 2018. We're reading the Autobiography of a Transgender Scientist by Ben Barris, uh, MIT class of 1976, selected by Professor Nancy Hopkins asked what one book she thought all MIT alumni should read this year, Professor Hopkins, who is the Amgen, Inc., Professor of Biology Emerita at MIT, selected the autobiography published by MIT Press this fall and for which Professor Hopkins wrote the introduction. You can join the conversation about the book at alum.mit.edu slash learn. Though he experienced discrimination as a female student named Barbara at MIT in the 1970s, Ben Barris writes that his greatest awareness of the differences between how men and women scientists are treated arose after his transition to a man in 1996. Barris, who went on to become an acclaimed neuroscientist and chair of the Neurobiology department at Stanford Medical School, died in December 2017 after a battle with pancreatic cancer. Professor Hopkins writes that Ben Barris single-handedly helped to level the playing field for women pursuing research careers in science. I started by asking Professor Hopkins about the struggle for women in science in two thousand eighteen. Have all the challenges that Ben faced as barbara gone away thirty five years
1: later? It hasn't completely gone away, but uh you know I think like Ben <laughs> um young women love m i t who go there because you know if you love science, there's what better place is there than MIT that isn't so I think. You know, they see this difference, but when you're young, you just think, oh, you know, I'm really good, I'm really smart, I have so much energy, I'm so passionate. It won't matter, you know, what difference it makes, these things happen. And you ignore it, and you just keep going. But I think when Ben, you know, transitioned later, many years later, became a man, he saw these things, we all have consequences. You know, it's not just the irritating comments or the put down or the whatever it is. That these things have real professional consequences. And he was so passionate about his trainees. I mean, that was a thing. It wasn't even for himself. He was by then a man. He was hugely successful. But he did it really for his own students and postdocs. He couldn't bear that they would not have an equal opportunity. He just couldn't tolerate it.
0: I'm talking to you in 2018, you know, it's a year and a half after the Women's March and nine months after the beginning of the Me Too movement, maybe a hundred years from now when the history is written, where will we have been in 2018? Are we at the tip of the iceberg right now? Many more shoes to drop, or are we two-thirds of the way through the the struggle?
1: What a great question. <laughs> what a wonderful question. I wish I knew the answer. You know, when we I worked on these issues with MIT, you know, many years ago, and we uh, issued this report in 1999, it had a big impact. And I thought, okay, boy, we got this one fixed. Everything's under control. And then, I don't know if you noticed, but a couple, about a week or two ago, the National Academies issued a report about sexual, what they call sexual harassment in in STEM fields and academia. And they say, you know, there hasn't been any progress in 25 years. And I think, no, wait a minute, that's not true. It was tremendous progress. You know, there really was. But we know it isn't done yet. I mean, if you look, the percent of women faculty in science at MIT today is 18%. In engineering, it's actually 19%. It's slightly higher in engineering now than in science. But we've been working on this for 50 years, right? And we're only up to 18%. I mean, we have so many amazing women scientists. I mean, Penny Chisholm, we have many. Anne Graviel, you know, Millie Dresselhaus, these amazing people. But uh, the numbers are still low. And the difficulty, certainly, I mean, I saw the improvement of, in my own lifetime from when I started, you know, till now. But if you look, really look carefully, you see that there's still serious issues the serious issues remain. And it's not just, you know, women have more family responsibilities. That's something we all know about. You know, that's true. But it's more than that. It's still the things that upset Ben, you know. It's the undervaluation and the exclusion from full participation. And he saw it, you know, as a transgendered person. He saw it as a woman. And he saw it also because of those experiences for the minorities as well. And he took them all on. You know, he he fought the battle for everybody.
0: Did he ever seek to be or want to be a spokesperson for the transgender, quote-unquote, community?
1: I think he did a tremendous amount there. And, you know, again, he did not talk to me about that a lot. He said he did. He told me he did a lot. And because many, many people contacted him, he never turned anyone away, talked to every person. But I don't know a lot about what he did there. Uh, I know he did a lot for minorities, too, but the main one he really worked on was the women thing, and I think because, you know, there are so many women trainees, you know, students and postdocs in biology, and yet what happens to them, you know? I mean, they've been 50% of the PhDs in biology for a long time, and yet they don't end up in those kind of numbers on the faculty. in track roles. Right, Exactly.
0: He he died this spring in... Uh, sorry, he died in the winter, right, in December. Talk about the last time you spoke with him.
1: I guess the last time I spoke to him, that probably in person, they held a wonderful conference to honor him while he was still alive. And they asked me to speak, and so I went to this conference. And um, it was mostly his former students and postdocs and his mentors. He also... Uh, loved his mentors like family members and the people who trained him. And they were there talking about, you know, and everybody spoke about this. Most people spoke about his science. And I talked about his contributions to Newman and science and, you know, increasing the openness of science. And it was just profoundly moving. To, and Because, you know, it's a funny thing. I knew, I mean, how much he meant to me. I don't think I fully realized that he meant that much to that many people. You know, it was, again, seeing how many people loved him. So that was when I saw him in prison. But we continued to email up until, you know, when he was at home dying in hospice care, I guess. So right to the end, he was emailing. I mean, I think also this question, what allowed him to overcome these obstacles and be so loving and so generous? And, you know, the kind of person he was, what is it about him that made him able to do that? And the thing about the science, you know, I mean, science is a rough business, right? And he had a tough time. He couldn't get a grant when he started out in the faculty position. And that is a killer. I mean, a lot of people are just done in by that, you know, but somehow he was had this I don't know what it is. I never did. No, <laughs> no. I think I'll never understand the guy. You know, you didn't hear whining and wailing. You just heard more determination. I mean, his passion was so great. His optimism, his strength, his, all these qualities. I mean, it's, inspi- it's an inspiration. You know, what helps people to get over these kind of obstacles, and how do how do we learn from that? You know, that, the things that seem like, oh my God, I didn't get a grant. The world's coming to an end. You know, no, it isn't really. <laughs> <laughs> it's not.
0: We see a lot a lot of academics turn to despair,
1: uh, and all negativity or competitiveness or nastiness or backbiting or mean spirit, you know, all of us have the tendency who knows, maybe he was mad at, I'm sure he was but no, I knew him a long time, you know, and he almost never said a negative thing about anybody and only if they were being brutally nasty to somebody else, you know, and not to him. It wasn't that he you know, somebody was nasty to me, it was Oh, they're not being nice to their students. You know, it was always about others, not about him. Extraordinary. And also about his science. I mean, because it's also the same thing about his science. And as he said, and it's sort of true, you know, anybody who does really innovative, good science, really good stuff the way he did, will tell you kind of the same thing. And that is that when they started out to do their best work, they were told, oh, that will never work. What a terrible (laughs) idea that is, you know. And so it requires some of that same quality. I mean, you have to believe in what you're doing <laughs> so deeply. If you just go along with everybody else, well, you're never going to do anything that important, probably. And he talks about that in this book. I thought that was very interesting because that is a similar quality. You know, what does it take? And the other thing was, you know, he didn't get uh, told to be a scientist by his parents. He came from a poor background. So a few individuals really shaped his career. And it shows you, oh, my God, the importance of a good mentor. So I thought that's a very interesting thing. What is it that helps somebody to have a successful career? I mean, obviously, his skill and his incredible talent and all that, but also these individuals who came at the right moment, he was able to use those connections and the inspiration he got from them to turn things around for himself. You know, so Martin Raff and David Corey at Harvard, and then a guy that he couldn't get a grant. And then somebody from NIH called him up and had seen one of his papers and said, it's a great paper. How come you don't reference the NIH? He said, because I can't get a grant. And the guy said, what? So it took him on and, you know, became his protector for 20 years. These people supported him and helped him. And I think that also inspired him to be a mentor for other people, because he saw that, you know, these people made it possible for him to get over these obstacles.
0: Well, the book is The Autobiography of a Transgender Scientist. It's written by Ben Barris, class of 1976, and it's the subject of our MIT Alumni Book Club reading this fall. It was selected by Professor Nancy Hopkins and published by MIT Press. We encourage alumni to check out the book and join the conversation about it by visiting alum.mit.edu slash learn. Professor Hopkins, thank you.